Good evening. On this week's programme, Trauma, Testimony and the Irish Civil War. Shifra Aiken on her book Spiritual Wounds, which examines the overlooked testimonies of Civil War veterans. Also, the pioneering treatment of shell shock in Ireland. We'll hear about the unique and groundbreaking initiative to treat traumatised World War I soldiers at Richmond War Hospital in Dublin. But we begin this evening with Stories of the Revolution. That's a new initiative to record oral history from the 1916 to 1923 period. The project seeks to replicate the success of the 1937 Schools Folklore Collection, one of Ireland's most important heritage assets. Stories of the Revolution involved more than 800 children who have gathered thousands of previously unrecorded stories, all of them from that hotbed of revolutionary activity, West Cork. From the man who tucked Michael Collins into bed to the woman who played piano as her house burned around her. The stories and illustrations have just been published as a book and as an online archive. Flora McCarthy caught up with the project creator and manager, Terry Carney, and met some of the young writers. Yeah, uh, Tom Barry came knocking at the door around 8 o'clock when um, the Kellys were going to Mass and he was saying that there's a war situation going on here and that they have to stay low under the window or under the table until Tom Barry comes back and tells them it's safe to get up. 15-year-old Owen Hurley describing his family's experience on the day of the Kilmichael ambush. It was November 1920 and his great-grandmother, Nell Kelly, was 12 years old when Tom Barry came knocking on their door. Outside the house, on a bend on the road, members of the West Cork Flying Column were preparing their ambush. The fierce fighting that afternoon left 16 auxiliaries and three IRA men dead and left Nell with a lifelong dislike of Tom Barry as her son, Connie O'Reardon, Owen's granddad, explains. Oh, yeah, oh, God, oh, oh, oh. Tom Barry gave an order and you, you obeyed. She never liked Tom Barry. Never once did she come to the celebration and never. What did she say about the bullets, Connie? Well, I suppose she was, they were frightened of their life. I mean, there's someone 12 or 13 and there was more of the siblings there and they're lying by the window and... and the whitewash falling off the wall. It didn't last long because there's only so many shots in the gun and it, it died down then, but they still stay there. But she said it was like snow. Two days later, the auxiliaries returned and in an act of misplaced revenge, burnt down the Kelly home. Nell and her siblings fled across the fields. They, were, they ran, of course, but whatever bit of stuff they had and she lost her shoe. Her good confirmation. Her good confirmation. She, and she said, until she got married, I will give you out about the shoe. <laughs> it's for 1920, it's to get a shoe. Well, you could go around, wouldn't you? <laughs> Owen's essay is one of more than 300 in the beautifully presented book Stories of the Revolution. Inspired by the 1937 school's folklore collection, Terry Carney, manager of the Skibbereen Heritage Centre, asked the schoolchildren of West Cork to interview older people in their families, their neighbourhoods and communities. Hundreds of essays began to pour in. 
when we saw the results coming in, the material coming in and the stories coming in that first year, we knew it was pure gold and it had to continue. So over four years, 823 children participated. So there are thousands of small stories about this big history. What kind of stories came in? Everything from ordinary people's everyday lives and how they were disrupted to those directly involved in the conflict, including the Hales family, for example. Quite a few stories from them. And then the logistics of war and nearly every house in West Cork was a safe house, it seemed. And then, of course, all the stories of problems between families during the Civil War and, of course, personal recollections of big history events like Nell's story about Kilmichael really bring the era to life. How did you find children's interpretation of these stories from their families and their neighbourhoods? Some of them were very funny. You know, they got it wrong sometimes. Um, there was gorgeous uh, one or several occurrences where they thought the blackened hands instead of the black and tans. <laughs> so that was fun. But the other thing is, is adults speak more freely to children. So this recorded stories that they would never have recounted to another adult. It's also intergenerational history, isn't it? Completely. One of my favourite ones was a young boy who said he didn't hang out with his granddad much before this, but now he watches history videos with him and he talks to him about world affairs. (laughs) Incredibly, almost 400 people turned up for the book launch in Dunmanway. Anne Bradley, principal of Drumley National School near Kilmichael, says the whole community got involved. I was absolutely gobsmacked to see how many stories came in and the children took such an interest, so they went out talking to relatives, neighbours. Our SNA in the school gave a story, the teachers gave stories, and by the time we were finished, all of the children had something to write about. Kevin Dart of Flynn's story even shed new light on Eamon de Valera's immediate reaction on hearing the news of the death of Michael Collins. My uh, great-grandfather, Jack Wall, was uh, the chauffeur for Eamon de Valera in the Civil War. The day that they found out that Michael Collins was shot, I think it was a courier, came by them and told the two of them in the car that the big fellow was shot. And he put his face into his hands and started crying and said, poor Mick, poor Mick. Over 800 of these original essays will now be conserved in the Cork City and County Archives. Conor Nelligan, who's the Heritage Officer for Cork County Council, says the work is of historical importance. As an undertaking, it is something that I think historians will be looking back on because there are snippets of information that never made any history books and yet you know, you have children interviewing their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, getting stories that the older generation might have been more hesitant or reluctant to tell their sons and daughters. So there's some amazing bits of information. Important historically, but as Terry says, many of these stories of everyday life are also a joy to read. I loved the stories about ordinary people trying to go about their ordinary lives, their everyday lives. And one of my favourites was a couple who were due to get married in Cork City. Um, and the, the groom had a pair of shoes put away on the Never Never in Grant's shoe shop in Cork. 
unfortunately, a little event like the burning of Cork happened on the eve of the wedding. And when he went down to collect his shoes, the, 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 it had been looted and bombed and so on. So he got one black shoe and one brown shoe and his mother tried to make them two black with shoe polish. So he got married in two odd shoes, but it did them no harm because they lived a long and happy life and had 16 children together. <laughs> And as the annual commemorations begin outside the Kelly family home on a bend in the road at Kilmichael, Connie and his grandson Owen are talking history. It's just lovely when I'll be gone and, and I, I suppose that way is, uh, you, you, you don't ever know, so nobody knows, but uh, it's lovely to think that somebody uh, wrote something and that's and the thinking about you. Or they might mention you sometime in 20 years' time when it'll be long since gone. Flora McCarthy was reporting there. All details on where to get the book and access to the archive are on the Skibbereen Heritage Centre website under Stories of the Revolution. In 1958, the journalist Owen Neeson wrote a series of articles on the Irish Civil War. He titled them The Unspeakable War, calling it a story nobody dared to tell. It's common to hear that those who were active in the revolutionary period, and particularly the Civil War, did not like to speak about it. For many years, it was erased from official memory. History books, school textbooks and memoirs would end with the War of Independence, omitting the bitter conflict that followed. A book recently published by Irish Academic Press challenges the idea that the Civil War was covered in a total blanket of silence and highlights a wealth of published material that reveals a lot about the impact of the war on its participants. The book is called Spiritual Wounds, Trauma, Testimony and the Irish Civil War. The author is Dr. Schaefer Aiken, lecturer at Queen's University Belfast, who joins me now. Schaefer, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks very much, Miles. Talk to us, first of all, about this emphasis on unspeakability over the last century, the the notion that there was a a blanket of silence laid over the Civil War. Yes, we hear the word silence a lot in discussions of the Irish Civil War up to the present. And when we look at this in, in an international framework, we see that it's actually something that comes up in many cases after very catastrophic or very difficult events. There's a sense that these events were too difficult to speak about. And it's also strongly associated with civil wars as well in other contexts. What's interesting, though, is when we go back to look at the the legacy of the Irish Civil War, we can see the silence is reiterated in pretty much every decade from the 1920s on. Not only that, but the idea of silence actually predates the conflict itself. So even when newspaper coverage was covering the treaty debates and speculating about the idea of civil war breaking out, there's already a sense that civil war is particularly devastating and particularly unspeakable. Um, so what's interesting there is that the idea of unspeakability, it isn't actually a reflection necessarily of the events themselves. It's a reflection of what the historian Guy Biner refers to as pre-memory, that these civil wars are already viewed through a narrative framework, that they're already seen to be particularly devastating, particularly traumatic and particularly unspeakable. So I suppose it's not an unique that this would be, um, I suppose, how the Civil War was received and understood. But what's remarkable is that even though there's a huge emphasis on silence, there were also a lot of veterans who went out of their way to break the silence. And I suppose the silence is only one part of the story. Um, But do you think that the people who went out of their way to break the silence, perhaps, were the people on the the Republican side, the anti-treaty side? 
that you see a little bit more of that than you do of people who were on the free state side? Well, that's an interesting um, question, Miles, because that's something a few people have asked me. Um, and I suppose when I was starting on this research, I was interested in exploring that because the um, anti-Treaty Republicans definitely had a much stronger commemorative tradition. Many people say that even though they they lost the war, they they won the aftermath, in, in especially in terms of the memory wars afterwards. But what I was interested in is the fact that there are actually really remarkable cases of National Army soldiers who also documented their experiences as well. So it wasn't the case that it was just the anti-treaty side. And even within the anti-treaty side, um, there were a lot of splits again and a lot of very um, different opinions and different views on, on the conflict. Um, just in terms of some really interesting testimonies from the, the Free State side, you have a really fascinating novel from 1936 by a Dubliner called um, Patrick Malloy. And he wrote about his experience through a novel, um, which was called Jackets Green. And it was actually censored when it was published. So again, we can see there's there's a discomfort around that. Um, and we see these coming up again and again. There's another really fascinating account from the 1970s, again, published in, in the form of, of the, a novel from an officer called Anthony O'Connor, who was in the Free State Army in Athlone. A lot of the testimony that you talk about in the book, and one of the very really interesting things about the book is that you look in places that historians don't normally look, in literary works, for example. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them there, but there are you, you have dozens of references in the book to novels, to, to poetry that would be, I think, pretty unfamiliar to a modern audience, very much novels and poetry of their time. Yeah, well, that's it. I suppose I'm a trained historian. Um, I, I approach this from a history background, but I wasn't limiting myself to the, the military archives, even though I've worked extensively with them. And what was really remarkable, it was the material that was pushing me in that direction rather than, than me setting out to look there initially. Um, but as you mentioned, a lot of these testimonies are cropping up in places where historians don't traditionally look. So that's why they've been overlooked, as you said, in, in poetry, in short stories, a lot of novels, particularly in the 1930s. In fact, if we look at the amount of novels about the Irish Civil War, there were more autobiographical novels written by combatants than there were first person autobiographies by the end of the 1930s, and particularly in the case of women. And this reflects to, to a number of things. First of all, it was a protective strategy. This was a climate of libel, of censorship. It was also peer pressure and you're naming individuals who are still living. So by using this veil of fiction, these veterans were able to get around some of those pressures. And the other thing is that it was associated with the, the narrative practices at the time. They were used to reading these kind of autobiographical novels, particularly from veterans of the First World War. We can just think of examples like All Quiet and the Western Front. So these were, the, I suppose, the literary models that the, the veterans combatants were used to reading. Uh, one of the people who, one of the, the great writers who emerges from the War of Independence and the Civil War, and he's rather different because he's, he's a Marxist, he's a socialist, which is pretty unusual, is somebody like Pather O'Donnell. To what extent does Pather O'Donnell, who was on the anti-treaty side, does he address his experiences of the Civil War? Yeah, that's a good question. So Pather O'Donnell is included, and he's probably the one, the figure who's included in my book who's been studied the most in a way. So Father O'Donnell was uh, one of the few who wrote a memoir, um, The Gates Flew Open in 1932. Again, a lot of controversy around that, and that was very much written in the context of, of the 1930s and debates in the 1930s, and particularly his, his dissatisfaction with the Catholic Church at that stage. So he's writing about the mistreatment of anti-treaty Republicans by the Catholic Church in the 1930s as part of a contemporary agenda. And I think that's the other thing just to mention, that all of these accounts are reflections 
on the Irish Civil War, but at particular moments in time and historical moments in time. So they're often a reflection of what's happening when they're written as well as much as as what happened um, during the Civil War itself. And um, but Padre O'Donnell is definitely interesting because we could say that his memoir, I suppose, in the, is an example of this redemptive narrative of trauma from the anti-treaty side where um, suffering is nearly cyclical, that this is only, a, as he says himself, that this is only a chapter in a much greater struggle, which is the book that will be completed. But when we look then at his fiction, I think the fiction maybe gives a, a different um, idea of the emotional turmoil, maybe, of this period. Um, a remarkable novel is Adrigul, um, which is well out of print from the end of the 1920s. And in this case, we have a family who are suffering from severe poverty in rural Ireland. And they are catering for IRA men on the run in the War of Independence, subsequently in the Civil War. And the, the community breaks down in the Civil War. And this is not a glamorous picture whatsoever of the Civil War and ultimately a story of absolute tragedy and um, the faith of this family who who essentially give up their own um, supplies in order to, to look after IRA men on the run and suffer the consequences. So I think in that case, O'Donnell is interesting because we see the different narratives being presented in different forms. And I think that's something that comes up again and again and again. So many of these veterans had very different ways of addressing the period. They write about um, these experiences from very different vantage points, have different opinions on these events at different points in their careers, in their writing careers. And again, depending on what genre they're looking at. And in, in some cases, that fiction, and I suppose the creative aspect of the fiction allows for an emotional truth that maybe they couldn't convey in first person autobiography. And then, you know, we've got some of the of the great novelists of this period of the of the first half, uh, Irish novelists of the first half of the 20th century, Walter Macken, Eilish Stillen. They also write accounts of the of the Civil War, which, uh, you know, in their in terms of their oeuvre tend to be ignored. Yeah. So I, I, I've looked at that elsewhere. And um, just to say that the book is very specifically focused on veteran testimony. So those who were who were alive and active during the period. But absolutely, when we come then into the 1950s and 60s, we have Ailish Dillon, we have Walter Mackin. And I think what's fascinating there is that these are historical novelists. They're very much connected to the period. They're the subsequent generation. Their family have revolutionary connections. They're carrying out research, particularly on the Irish Civil War. And what they're doing is they're writing historical novels and they're challenging the professional historians who at the same time during this period were not writing histories of the Civil War. So we can see there that the novelists were actually ahead of the professional historians and in a way they suffered first. So Ailish Dillon, she actually claimed that by writing the Civil War, it was like that great marker of, of um I suppose, identity for an Irish writer. If you were on the censorship list or if you wrote about the Civil War, it was like being blacklisted. Um, and equally, um, Walter Mackin doesn't get the credit he deserves, um, even though The Scorching Wind, I imagine, it has been read really widely. It's widely available. And I think a lot of people were reading those texts because it was giving them access to a history that maybe they didn't learn in school. Some people did want to talk about it. Now, they might not necessarily have wanted to talk to their families about it, but they did talk to interviewers for the Bureau of Military History witness statements. They weren't supposed to talk about the Civil War. Their contributions were supposed to end with the truce. But, you know, as you'd be aware from reading a number of Bureau of Military History witness statements, many, 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 particularly on the Republican side, uh, it's almost as if they don't let the interviewer turn off the tape recorder. They keep talking. 
and they talk about the civil war. I mean, did you come across many examples of that? Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing to say that's interesting is that in a lot of cases, revolutionaries might have been silent about these events to their children, but spoken about it to contemporaries. And I think that's something to think about when we think of the silence, that we might hear of silence, particularly in families. But that's not to say that these people were silent in every context. Um, And the Bureau of Military History is a good example of that. So the Bureau of Military History, in a way, when it was established in 1947, it's a very profound example of the discomfort around the legacy of the Irish Civil War and the states, I suppose, we could even say refusal to to address the civil war. It wasn't included in the dates that were set for the Bureau of Military History. The Bureau of Military History was meant to end with the truce of 1921. But as you say, when we look at the counts, we realise that a number of veterans keep going, that they go beyond the uh, dates that were laid out. And then actually within the Bureau, they quietly jettison their 1921 end date um, by the end of the 1940s. And we see then particularly the testimonies and the statements that are gathered from the 1950s that there's more likelihood to have descriptions of the Civil War. That said, there were many who didn't want to write, talk about the Civil War. And they're also quite vocal about that in the Bureau, that they will say that they no longer, they do not want to go any further, that they don't want to address the contentious events of the Civil War. They do not want to talk about Irish on Irish violence on on this split. But I think even that is quite telling, the fact that people express their desire not to talk about it again um, tells us a lot about the legacy of the conflict. Now, obviously, they're talking to an interviewer, they're talking to somebody uh, who was not involved, who is supposed to be neutral. They're also they're also aware of the fact that this testimony is not going to emerge in their own lifetimes. But to address something that you mentioned, which was the the, the fact of veterans who would talk to their contemporaries, who would talk to people who were involved. I suppose the classic example of that is with with Ernie O'Malley. And even in the title of his book, The Men Will Talk to Me, i.e. the implication being they won't talk to their sons and daughters. They won't talk to, to free staters, but they'll talk to me. Absolutely. Ernie O'Malley is a fantastic example. And I suppose with Ernie O'Malley, again, going back to that idea that many people who live through difficult and traumatic circumstances actually have this desire to revisit and process that experience. And if we look at O'Malley, we can see that in so many different forms from the the memoirs. He also wrote fiction, which I'm I'm working on more at the moment and that hasn't been published yet. And he also went and carried out his, I suppose, his own unofficial oral history and traveled across the country in the 1940s and 1950s, gathering testimonies from veterans all across the the country. And in a way, that was him revisiting his own experience in a certain uh, way and and filling in the gaps of knowledge that he didn't have himself. So absolutely, there is that. And the idea that he was able to gather this material um, again shows that there was a willingness to speak about it. And again, depending on the person and who could be trusted again to to pass on these difficult stories. Um, An interesting couple that you uh, write about, husband and wife, uh, Pardigal Horan and Eileen Dolan, both were interned by the Irish Free State during the Civil War. Both were writers and they take advantage, if you like, of their own skills. They, They tell their stories, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Porco Horan and Ayesh Dolan are really remarkable and remarkable too in that they haven't been picked up at all aside from one article. And that's that's what's remarkable about so many of these writings, the strengths of the veiled of silence, the emphasis 
on silence has included so many remarkable writers and remarkable veterans and remarkable projects of remembrance, I suppose. And so what's interesting here is that they had very interesting personal circumstances. They were both Dubliners. They were both teenagers when the Civil War broke out. Porca Horn um, mobilized uh, with the Battle of the Four Courts um, and was interned quite soon afterwards, like a lot of anti-treaty veterans. He was interned then for 18 months. Um, in the case of Eilish Dolan, she was only 15, but she was interned because her mother was was had, had basically had a safe house and there were weapons that were found by Free State Army soldiers in their house um, in Stony Badder, and she was interned for six months. But both of them were really shook, I suppose, by this profound experience of imprisonment at such a young age. And when O'Horan was in prison, he was particularly unhappy with the way he felt the younger members and probably the Dublin working class volunteers in, in the anti-treaty side were being abused by the hierarchies on the Republican side and essentially sacrificed within within the battle for Dublin. And he was also very upset then about the mistreatment of Republican prisoners by the Catholic Church. And as a result, he, he decided when he was released from prison to um, go towards Methodism and he converted to Methodism as part of what he referred to as the spiritual revolution in order to, to heal the wounds of the Civil War. And Eilish Dolan followed him on that spiritual revolution. So they wrote really um, remarkable accounts throughout their lives from various different places, from various different viewpoints about this. And what's interesting is they wrote through all these different genres. So when Parker Horn was in um, um, Gormstown, he was actually writing poetry that was being published at the time. Um, but nobody knew he was an anti-treaty prisoner because he didn't write that on the poems that he was writing. But he was, he's using poetry, I suppose, as a veiled form of testimony. He then writes a fictionalised, very extensive um, account of the Civil War that's serialised in um, the Methodist mag magazine. He also writes a non-fiction account. He also writes poetry throughout his life and equally... Um, his future wife, then Eilish, she writes not only memoirs, two memoirs, she also writes short stories and she also goes on to write novels later on. So we have this remarkable body of writings across numerous genres, which are revisiting, again, this very turbulent time, a time and I suppose an experience that was so difficult for both of them that it, it led to a spiritual revolution, a conversion to Methodism, which also meant a fallout from their families, from their traditional Catholic families who didn't appreciate um, this spiritual revolution. So really remarkable stories, I think. Um, but there's so much evidence to, to to look at and to read and how they try to process these experiences in different ways. Which brings me naturally to your own family. Couldn't talk to somebody called Schiffer Aiken uh, without <laughs> discussing the DNA that you have in the game. Your great grandfather was Frank Aiken. One gets the sense with Frank Aiken that after the death of Liam Lynch, when he becomes the officer commanding um, what the Free State called the Irregulars, that he couldn't end the Civil War quickly enough. To what extent did he, if at all, talk about this uh, with members, with, with family members? Yeah, so um, one of the things I, I tried to address at the end of the book was, I suppose, the influence on, of family history on any kind of academic work. Um, I think we have a tendency in history to pretend that we're totally neutral or removed, and oftentimes we're not. We all have family connections. We all have different connections to this. And I think um, it really is quite remarkable because 
the Civil War was a very difficult time for Frank Aiken, and it was something that he did not want to address. So even though I'm looking at the silence breakers, he was really a silent enforcer, if you like. He didn't um, give a statement um, to the Bureau of Military History. He didn't even do a proper interview with Ernie O'Malley. Um, there's other examples of people approaching him for interviews. He was highly reticent um, about this period and actually quite disparaging of people he felt who spent too much time writing books and memoirs. So absolutely, it was something that had to be addressed because um, in a way he is at odds with many of the figures that, I, that I've been looking at in, in my book. But the other thing that um, in terms of family history that came up is that as I was working on this project for, for over the course of about four or five years, I discovered a lot of family history that I'd never realized. But all of it really was related to, to the women revolutionaries in my family, some of them who didn't even realize were active. And um, so I was working on coming on emigration, working on the nominal roles. And I see my great aunt, Nellie Stewart, who was there high in the, the coming man in Passage West in Cork. And even though I'd heard of Nellie growing up all my life, I'd never realized that she'd been coming to man, nor had anyone else in the family. So there's the, these kind of breaks where the women's stories aren't passed on in the same way as the men. An equally fascinating case and, and a really quite, quite, I suppose, emotional case was when I was working on the Ernie O'Malley interviews, I was doing the transcriptions and um, it was actually um, Mick O'Hanlon, his interview about an escape from the Curragh camp in, in, in the end of 1922, anti-treaty Republicans who escaped and then they were being harboured in a house in Kildare. And there's a reference in the interview to the fact that a girl was shot. And I suppose I was doing the footnotes, you have to footnote all of these interviews, what, what, what happened. And I was kind of, um, I suppose, shocked by that reference and really intrigued for months in, in terms of who, who was this girl who's not mentioned, who's not named, who was shot and what happened. So I went through the death records to see, could I find what this is referring to? And I found out that this was a young girl called Annie Cardwell, that um, she had been accidentally shot by a, a Republican activist when they were playing, I suppose, in, in the kitchen, that it was a total accident. Not only that, but Annie Cardwell, is a first cousin of Frank Aiken. So she's actually my own relation that I came across. And again, that hadn't passed down our side of the family, even though other family, when I asked them subsequently, knew about this. But again, that was obviously something that was too painful to pass on. But I found that I suppose I was stumbling across this family history again and again, that in a way the family history was trespassing on my own work. Um, and that was something that I addressed and I, I've deliberately included particularly four female revolutionaries in my family whose who's acti activism I wasn't aware of before working on this. Interesting because you, I mean, you address obviously the issue of trauma in uh, extensively in the book. Are there major gender dimensions to civil war trauma? Because as usual, when, when we talk about the civil war, women tend to get written out. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many ways in which trauma is gendered. I suppose we can talk about it in terms of the occlusion of women. Civil wars are so often seen as brother against brother, whereas actually in, in this case, particularly women were very active in the civil war and actually probably more active in the civil war um, than in the previous period. Um, but just going back to understandings of trauma, trauma is tied to gender in, in a lot of ways. The language of trauma didn't exist, okay, is the first thing to say in, in the 1920s. So we have to be quite careful. Um, but what we do see is we see references to nerves, to hysteria, to nervous breakdowns, to shell shock. And there's all of these discourses circulating in the aftermath of the First World War. These are revolutionaries who are also reading Freud. They're very much aware of the psychological legacies of um, wartime experience, even if the, the terminology that we now have wasn't in existence. They had their own terminology and their own very sophisticated ideas. 
But um, these nervous conditions were seen to be very much something that affected women, but something that affected women biologically anyway. So because of that, women who are presenting with nervous exhaustion, for example, it was seen to be a condition of womanhood rather than a condition of their wartime experiences or their experiences. So it was much more difficult for them to get compensation through the, the medical um, bodies. And it was very difficult for the men as well to get compensation too. And I think part of this, and um, what I've argued anyway, is if we think of the establishment of the new state, it wasn't one of the priorities to emphasize the psychological difficulties that came out of this revolution, this revolution that was meant to be something that was more heroic and that had, had led to the foundation of the state. But if we look to post-war Britain, there was far more emphasis on shell shock and far, far more compensation in post-war Britain. And also in a in a post-colonial context that the emphasis was on these um, valiant and heroic guerrilla war fighters rather than on, on focusing on the difficult uh, medical realities and aftermaths of the conflict. And then the other thing is just even in terms of treatment, um, there's a fantastic case well, a really remarkable case where we can see how men and women were treated very differently for exhausted nerves. There was a Dublin doctor called um, Dr. Robert Farnan, and um, we have accounts of Michael Collins actually sending his men to um, Dr. Farnan, who would have been involved in the squad. So anyone who was low in health apparently was sent to him. And he was a ladies doctor, a gynecologist by profession. And again, this ties into the idea that nervous conditions were associated with the female body. But because he was a gynecologist, he, he was looking after these men who were ill, who were low in health. And according to the statements we have, he was known to cure the men by merely speaking to them. So there's a sense that he spoke to the men. He was able to to get them, I suppose, to, to control their emotions again and enable them to continue. And um, particularly in this context of conflict, that they were able to re-enter the conflict zone. But then we see his treatment of female revolutionaries it's very different so the women are usually given these rest-based therapies they're advised to take extended leave from the stressful environment often from six weeks to six months sent to Malahide to the seaside to be outside in the open air as a way I suppose of regaining their health and we see that again the, these kind of climate treatments as well of going to, to sunny places but ultimately what we have here is men's treatment is about quick recovery and re-entry to the war zone and also to the, the workplace, whereas women's treatment is actually precluding them from public life. It is, is it is setting them aside from public life. So there's a huge amount of, I suppose, of discourses, not only in, in terms of memory, but also if we break down the medical context as well. Um, and also tied again to um, ideas of class as well as gender. Who could afford to go to somebody to treat them for nervous exhaustion? That definitely wasn't something that a lot of people could afford at this time. The book is called Spiritual Wounds, Trauma, Testimony and the Irish Civil War. It's published by Irish Academic Press. The author is my guest, Shifra Aiken. Shifra, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks so much, Miles. After the break, we'll be staying with the subject of trauma after an intense conflict as we look at how shell shock was treated after World War I. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 
World War I troops were the first to be diagnosed with a new condition, shell shock. In Dublin, a unique and groundbreaking initiative to treat these traumatised soldiers began at the Richmond War Hospital. This was a small, specialist, psychiatric hospital located on the grounds of the Richmond District Asylum at Grange Gorman. Descriptions of patients from the War Hospital archives offer an insight into the minds of those who'd gone through a traumatic war experience. In October 1918, a 23-year-old Catholic captain was admitted to Richmond War Hospital owing to the hardships of war and being buried by shellfire. The admitting officer noted that he seems rather weak and emotional, tongue tremulous, fine tremor of limbs. Mentally he was dull, depressed and confused, replies more by motion of his head. Case history, driver AB. He is so confused, he does not realise where he is and speaks at times as if he believed he was in France. He was blown up by a shell behind the lines. He seems rather nervous and apprehensive. When questioned more closely, he asked, The guns are coming out, aren't they? Aren't they coming up for a rest? When he drops off to sleep, he wakes up in a fright and fancies someone is beside his bed. He states he hears everyone talking about him, but cannot tell what they say. He complains of some pain in his head and loss of memory. When questioned if he were in France, he said... Yes. And then... No, I remember now. I'm in Ireland, aren't I? I think I am. A collection of excerpts there from the Richmond War Hospital archives. The hospital was a 32-bed complex dedicated to the treatment of members of the British Expeditionary Forces suffering from shell shock and other mental disorders. Between June 1916 and December 1919, 386 patients were treated. About half of those patients were reported as having recovered afterwards. The treatment provided there was pioneering at the time and contributed greatly to further developments in the treatment of mental health. I'm joined now by Eamon Delaney, author and director of The Lion and the Shamrock, a website dedicated to telling the stories of Irishmen who fought in the British Army in two world wars. Eamon, you're very welcome indeed Thank to the History much, Show. Miles. Now, shell shock, or I mean, nowadays we'd call it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Had anything like it been seen before World War One, or was it the direct result of the uh, industrialization of warfare in the early 20th century? It was very much the latter. The scale of World War One, the nature of it, the industrialized quality, as you said, really brought it to the fore on a huge scale. But obviously all conflict, all wars, soldiers were traumatized. It was bottled up, it was part of the game. They worked it out through conflict, through the adrenaline, of course, fight or fright. In the Boer War, they were the first diagnosis cases, but that may be miles because medicine had changed that they could identify it or want to identify it. But uh, So it was on a small scale, but really immediately with Mons and with those battles in autumn 1914, it was apparent that this was a kind of type of war like no other. There was a massive bombardment, highly explosive shells, and soldiers were stuck in trenches. The mm. race to sea, as I called it, where the lines were formed, the soldiers couldn't get out and fight. They couldn't work it off. So they were sitting ducks. So that added to their trauma. And uh, two other reasons, the calibre of soldier was different. It was a citizen's army, Kitchener's new army. It wasn't professional. And thirdly, certainly by 1916, 
and maybe even earlier on, it was realised this was a pointless war. It seemed pointless. So those three things contributed. How did the symptoms then present themselves and, and what was the initial reaction from the, the British military? Were they compassionate or did they adopt the kind of curtain treatment, pull yourself together? Well, they felt that the guys should just get on with it and uh, go back to fight. But there was a recognition that it could demoralise the other soldiers, spread panic in the ranks and that other soldiers might emulate them and imitate them and also not have to serve. In some famous cases, of course, it was treated as desertion and disobedience and they were shot at dawn and that's another whole mm. whole area. But uh, there was some sympathy. Certainly the medical doctors on the ground were very sympathetic and said, you've got to recognise this is a level of trauma we haven't seen in soldiers before. It needs to be treated. It needs to be uh, taken seriously. I suppose some of the most famous ones would be uh, the treatment of, of uh, Siegfried Sassoon in Craig Lockhart. Yes, exactly. By, by yeah. Rivers. But the, the Richmond War Hospital, our own example, our own Craig Lockhart, I suppose, was situated within the Richmond Asylum Complex. Was it open specifically to treat soldiers suffering from shell shock? It was, yeah. There, there was a, an existing mental health facility there, as you know. It was a spillover from that. The army said that they needed certain hospitals, obviously, with World War I underway. So Leopardstown was developed. The George V Hospital, which is now St. Brickens. There were hospitals all around the country. There was lots of it in the UK and Belfast was very active. But in Dublin, the Richmond War Hospital was the venue and that's where it was used. Tell us about Gordon Holmes, the doctor who oversaw the Richmond War Hospital well, and uh, what the kind of treatment, uh, to what extent he was pioneering. In, in his well, you see, he was already, uh, some of these doctors and psychiatrists, including uh, Rivers in the UK, they were already pioneers in this area. They were experimenting in psychotherapy. Uh, Sigmund Freud was kind of dominant and he was in the war and said, there's a way I can deal with this. We need to be sympathetic. But he was a neurologist as opposed to a psychiatrist. So he was dealing with head injuries, of which there were many. So he was, he was kind of rebuffed and told that you had to just focus on the head injuries, the fractures and the brain concussion and brain damage and not in the psychiatric aspect, which is another thing. So the whole area there is to how much of it's physical and how much of it's just psychiatric, you know. What kind of treatments were used? So the treatments were kind of just basic stuff you do now for anyone suffering from, I mean, lots of rest and recreation, bucolic setting, if you could, in a landscaped area. There were drugs used. Bromide was one. Valerian. These were used as sedatives and the Germans used them quite a lot because uh, they also had shell shock, of course, on, on a vast scale. Some of it involved cups of coffee. The one guy became addicted to coffee. That was in the, in the files. It's quite interesting. I would have thought it was a... A hyper thing, but, it, you know, it relaxes people to feel good quality to it. But a lot of it was just basic stuff. And as Brendan Kelly has said in his book, he lost himself completely, which is a wonderful short history of the Richmond War Hospital. It's just basic, tender, loving care, like all hospitals would have. But up to then, soldiers regarded just rough and ready and they weren't given that kind of tender, loving care, you know. And were people like Holmes, were they trusted in their approach by well, no, the There was a lot of battles. I mean, this book mm. I brought here, Taylor Downing, Breakdown, the Crisis of Shell Shock and the Somme, 1916. He documents the battles that the medical people had with the military, with Haig, with uh, Rawlinson, with the various uh, generals who argued that the Edwardian era or the, this era was producing uh, effeminate men or not real soldiers, were with the hardy men who fought the Boer War and across India and Afghanistan. So the doctors had to fight to have the soldiers treated and looked after, you know, and had their techniques uh, cared for. You've looked at some individual yeah. cases. Um, now, as we've heard from that collage, you don't have the, the names as such. No, the, the, no, the names are, you can you work out the details and regiments. Mm. Um, but uh, yes, a private VW. So he was blown out of a trench at Arras, with the Battle of Arras. 
and his speech was affected. Uh, his tongue was tremulous. He was stammering. You would have thought there were kind of mild symptoms, actually, compared to what others would suffer, who were just absolutely catatonic. But um, he had headaches and noises, visions, and insomnia is a large part of it. A lot of the demons came out at night. I found that in stories that I sought out in my own project with the Lion and the Shamrock, you know, talking to families. It was uh, at night time that it really came to the fore. But with rest and treatment of the various sources, he was able to go on a recovery week by week. And after two weeks, he was cheerful. And after two months, he was discharged. So it was quite rapid. It mm. wasn't, they weren't there for months. They were there for just a few weeks. But they weren't sent back. Some were sent back. There was a desire to have them sent back. But the feeling was the army didn't want them back. Yeah. Really. They they probably still thought of them as malingers, as the word it was. You know, I mean, for the layman or laywoman, Robert Gray's book, Goodbye to All That, mm. is a wonderful book, uh, just a wonderful book in general. But it's a, it really brings home all of what soldiers were, were suffering. But because he's a writer and a poetic sensibility, he really is vivid about it. And he describes going back to on leave because some of the soldiers went back to leave and went back, especially officers, not the serving privates so much. But in Piccadilly Circus, he'd just see on the ground men dying there. But they weren't there. They were just soldiers in trenches, Miles. They just literally, people were watching there were just flashbacks in the middle of a bus, in a train. It could be in Dublin. And because what they saw was just incredible, the amount of death, the amount of injury and the bombardment of the shells, you know. And especially at the Somme, Miles, I mean, you're looking, there's carnage in the first day, the 1st of July, 1916. There's carnage for that whole month. It just continues vast casualty uh, figures. Which prompts the question whether 368 soldiers being treated at Richmond War Hospital was really a drop in the ocean. It, it was a drop in the ocean, I think, yeah. We're talking about now because it's Grange Gorman Histories Project. I did this essay for them and Grange Gorman's been redeveloped as a campus. And look, every human life is sacred. Every soldier's life is a life, you know, but it is very small compared to the scale of people, you know. Mm. I think it's of all significance also because the techniques in psychoanalysis and therapy were pioneering and were then brought into mainstream psychiatry for all people and not just for soldiers, you know. But there must have been hundreds of thousands who went completely undiagnosed. Yeah, exactly. Back so, to so civilian life. In, in the stories, I just have these short stories, really personal stories on the website. A lot of what the family said was the guys went back and just became heavy smokers, heavy drinkers, didn't talk about it. Or else just buried it, you know. Mm. It, it should be said that an awful lot of people served, came back and didn't seem to be affected. That's the same for World War Two, But I think with World War One, it was the nature of the war. And also in, in the Irish case, they came back to a country that had changed politically totally, and they didn't yeah. feel wanted. Adjoining Grange Gorman, there's a small road, which is in a way a yeah, memorial to yeah, those soldiers. Yeah, Marne Road. This is something to point out to me, only relatively recent actually. So that's for the Battle of the Marne, the great French standoff where they fought to defend their Paris ultimately and uh, it's on Grange Gorman there at the end of Rackdown Road just a few steps from Richmond War Hospital so it's a fitting a fitting address you know Memorial. Okay um, thank you very much indeed yeah, for talking much. to us and anybody who wants to know more about Irishmen who served in the British Army during World War One and who suffered the kind of mental torture and mental anguish that Eamon's been talking about can uh, look at Eamon's website The Lion and the Shamrock and there you'll find a lot of poignant personal stories of Irish veterans of World War One and also details of upcoming tours and talks My guest was Eamon Delaney Great to talk to you Thanks. about the Richmond nice War Hospital talk. a pioneering hospital right in the heart of Dublin City.
That's all we've time for in this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.